All right. Good morning. Last week we spoke on Israel. If you were here, we talked about, well, we answered the question, should I care about Israel? And um, last week we covered that God chose Abraham through him. He chose Israel. He raised a nation that he had a purpose with. He made promises, made a covenant to Abraham and his people. We saw how he has fulfilled that through time. We also saw he has an affection for Israel and that he is faithful to them, that they still have a future. We talked about that last week. And so today, uh, the message is, uh, why, I, why should I care about Israel? Part two. So we're going to build on what we did last week. But I wanted to start the message today by showing you this picture of our missionary we just prayed for, um, the Kalashiers. This is him. I, I think he is praying for his son but I'm not um, 100% sure on that because they've been ministering to soldiers. So it might just be another soldier. But this is what they're doing. They're going to uh, as close as they can and ministering in these ways, bringing um, gifts and uh, needs, things that they, they, they need, but praying and then also uh, supporting the church, the church that exists um, and their daughter church. Uh, and then... Um, as Andrew said, ministering to families who uh, knows someone that was lost or someone in their family was lost, killed in those attacks. So as this is going on, I want to give us a context for how to filter all of this because I'm reading his letters that he sends and uh, I I feel like I get a little bit of an inside look on the ground there. But at the same time, when I look, turn on the TV, there's quite a mix of information some seems to pull in a direction that is very anti-Israel. And how should we feel about Palestine and what's going on there? So last week, what I said to you was, I want to give you biblical scripture to help you when you leave here, be able to navigate those conversations that you're going to have in culture, the filter, what you see, what you hear. How does God direct you in all of this that's going on? Now, The way that I want to do that today is we're going to go back into Scripture and we're going to look at a scenario where Israel, very similar to today, kind of a surprise attack and surrounded by enemies and how God felt about all of that. And we're going to see something in the story that can guide us for today. So let me pray about that. Father, I thank you for your word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to rightly divide. And we need that. We need to be able to rightly divide between what we're seeing and hearing and the conversations so that we are sure that we are not tossed to and fro within our culture by the things that, the winds that are blowing, the cultural winds, but we can stand as a true testimony to your word and reflect your heart. So uh, I ask your blessing on the message today that it would go into the ears and the hearts of, of your church and that you would utilize it and uh, for your purposes. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the scenario we're going to look at is <clears throat> the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles. It says, some men came to him and said, Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you. And here is the king. And suddenly, and he's going to discover that there are a number of enemies who have come together against him. They formed alliances, and he is worried. He is stressed. He's, he goes to the people, we need to pray, you need to fast, and we're going to get a look at how they responded to imminent threat and how God felt about it. One of the ways we know this is that we have an insider, because Chronicles, it chronicles the story, but then there's an insider. His name is Asaph who was in, in some of those conversations. He was present. He is a writer. He's written a number of the Psalms. And we go to Psalms 83, and you will see him write. Psalm 83 is their response, the heart of Asaph towards God in the moment that the enemies are approaching Jehoshaphat to destroy them. Psalm 83, you can turn there and follow with me today as we're going to look at what Asaph had to say. But here's what he said in verse 1. He said, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still 
O God. And so the very first thing we see in a response by this writer of Scripture is who he turns his attention to. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says that Asaph asks not for a leader bold and brave or for any form of human force, but casts his burden upon the Lord being well assured that his eternal power and Godhead could meet every difficulty of the case. He doesn't turn his eyes towards, we need a powerful ally that's human. He turns his eyes towards God. And I chose this quote from Spurgeon and underlined eternal power. And then I want you to look at the word Godhead. Because the first place that you need to settle as you discuss and filter what's going on is who God is. And the question that he's asking here is, where's God? Where is he in all this? And we might have that thought ourselves sometimes. We look at some of the pictures, we see what's going on, we're like, where is God? Why is he allowing this to happen? And the first thing I got to give you, because he says eternal power, meaning Asaph knew, no human force, I'm going to turn to God because of his attributes. And right here, the emphasis is eternal power. God's power is sufficient to save Israel in the moment. Asaph knows that he turns there, but that's not his only attribute. And what I want to lay out, the very first step today is this. Do you know the attributes of God? For example, he's holy. There is nothing unclean in him, never an unclean thought, an unclean word, an unclean action, an unclean decision. So when I look at the Bible, and sometimes he's even saying to do something, and, and, and I go, well, that, 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 that doesn't seem right. But he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's just. Every decision he makes is the right decision. Those are his attributes. He can never violate his own character. He's sovereign. And so last week, when we put up one slide where he made his covenant to Abram and the people of Israel through Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be an eternal possession. And remember, I said there are people already in that land. And you might say, that doesn't seem fair. And I said, well, he owns everything. He can give what he owns to who he wants. But then he says, go in and destroy them, drive them out. That doesn't seem, but wait a minute. He's a holy God. Every decision he makes is right and just. So we need to begin to pull that into how we filter what he says to do. That's part of what I'm going to drive at today. Where is God? He is working his plan out within his character, his own attributes. Paul in the New Testament says he works all things together for good to accomplish his purposes. Everything he's taking and doing and weaving it together to fulfill his plan. Sometimes I didn't even see it. And then other times I go, wow, that's why he did that. Why did God send a famine to drive the patriarchal family to Egypt where Joseph already was unknowingly by the family? Yeah, the famine was part of that plan to drive them there so that they would survive but not only that, he grew a nation there. Before Egypt, they were just a family. They come out of Egypt, a nation of people with a culture to them. But one of the most fascinating aspects of that is that the reason he sent them to Egypt is because two places it says in the Old Testament, no Egyptian would marry a Jew. They were shepherds. A shepherding family coming out. They took care of animals. And in the Egyptian culture, they thought that was the lowest class you could be. To marry one of them would have been anti-Egyptian. And there's a way in which that served part of his purpose. Because if they intermarried Egyptian gods, Egyptian culture, then mixes in with him, and it can threaten the plan of God down the line. And I want you to see that he's sovereign in all these things, what he, do, what he does. He, where is he? Why is he silent? Because he's working his plan out within his character. 
Another fascinating book of the Bible is Esther. You know why it's fascinating? Because the word God is not mentioned in the entire book. Some people thought this can't be belong in the, in the Bible. The word God's not even mentioned. But there's a reason for that. Because in the book of Esther, the story is about how Haman, the villain, orchestrates a plan using his position within government to eradicate the Jewish population. And yet God sovereignly moves Esther in the right place. She's courageous, and she ends up saving all the Jews. And the part of the, the, the lesson is this. Even when it seems like God's there, when he's silent, he's still working. He's still orchestrating, and he's still bringing about things. Where is God? He is working his plan out within his character. Number two, he is waiting to bring peace. Asaph writes, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. You see, he wants him to move. Don't be still. Move. I need you to move. We need peace. Bring your peace. Peace ultimately belongs to God. Well, bring it. Well, it's in his time, he will. He will bring his plan. Even today, we might say, bring peace. And we look at Scripture. And we know that someday the Lord will return. And he will fix everything and restore and bring about a people who, where peace is eternal. But Peter says he's patiently waiting. Because once he comes back, those who have rejected him will be judged. And so he does not wish that any will perish He's patiently waiting, giving opportunity for people to come to know him. Peace belongs to the Lord. He will bring it about in his time. And when this Asaph is, is, is saying, don't be still, bring peace. Well, it will come in his time. And as I read some of the letters from our missionary, do you know what he said in one of them? We are holding on to Scripture and he gave some of them. One of them that he gave was Psalm 83. The very words I'm reading you right now, there are Jews in Israel reading it and wanting the same application to today. Where are you? Don't be still. We are your people. Many are not because they're, they're not believers. But our missionaries are. And they're looking at this scripture like that. And from just a few days after the first attack on Israel... I read that letter, and then I went to Psalm 83, and I've read it every single day since, the, since, that, since then. And I'm always looking in this, what God is saying in this chapter. And then as the opportunity came, I said, I'm going to preach this. You need to hear this, what he says. And right now, he's silent, but he's working his plan. He's silent. He's waiting to bring peace in his time. And he's silent because he's weaving parts together with purpose. He's weaving parts together with purpose. Well, what could be his purpose, you might ask? Let's unpack reasons why he might be silent. We can see reasons in Scripture. Number one, he might be silent to test faith. A great example of that is in the New Testament when the disciples were in the boat and they're crossing and there's a great storm that comes and the waves and the wind and they're like afraid and they're working hard to save the boat and they all turn around and there's Jesus asleep. Why are you being silent? Don't you see we're about to perish? Why are you quiet? And so they, we're going to die. Wake him up. We need the peace. We need to bring the peace now. And they wake him up. And Jesus says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have what? No faith. You see, the testing of that storm revealed their faith was small. You have the Lord of weather in your boat, and you are afraid. And of course, after he says that, he speaks to the weather, and it calms down. Sometimes he's silent because he's testing. What kind of faith is there? I know there's some faith there, but how strong is it? Sometimes he's silent to discover faith. Is there really faith there? Is there? You see a great example of this in Isaiah 59. You can 
uh, read that if you want later and work through it and see. But I explained it right here. Sometimes God leaves His cause to see who will stick to it and who will plead for it. He's being silent, maybe to see who will stand up for the right thing. And I tell you right now, in our culture, there's a lot of unmasking going on, revealing the true heart. I, have, I am astonished at the rise of anti-Semitism in the world. I read books to try to understand how it was that an entire country of Germans thought it was okay to exterminate six million Jews. How did you even get to that point? But I can see it unfolding today, a rise in anti-Semitism, and people are astounded by it. I watched a video of clip of the German, I think it was vice chancellor, and he was addressing his country, talking about it. I speak to, German, uh, to Jewish families, and they tell me their children are afraid to play sports, to go to school. They're staying in their houses. And he was really going at it because they're the, they're the one country that the entire world connects to anti-Semitism. And now they're standing up against it, even though there's a mix within their culture. But sometimes God is silent to reveal what is really there. Who's going to stick to what is really right? Who will plead for it? Who's going to plead against anti-Semitism? Now, those are some of the reasons, but so you have testing faith. He's silent to discover faith, but sometimes he's silent to destroy the wicked. And it works this way. Oh, look at Israel, they're weak. We can gather our forces and go get them. This is what you see at the end. Remember my slide I put up there and, and uh, I had all the people who were going to gather against Israel at the end to try to destroy them? It's a gathering. He keeps silent to gather the wicked into one bundle that they may be destroyed together. Gather all the enemies together so that in one blow he can destroy all of them. And you see this happen a number of times in Scripture. But sometimes that's what he's doing. He's silent because he's allowing them to rise up in such a way, unmasked, we now know, and together one act can destroy. So these are reasons why God is silent. Asaph says, don't be silent, act. But those are reasons why. Well, then we might ask, okay, then who are the real enemies? Who are the real enemies? I mean, this is the challenge, right? When you are seeing some of what we're seeing on television, on YouTube, what we hear, the conversations, we see a picture of destroyed buildings. We see a picture of injured people that seem innocent. Whenever there's a war, it's, it's difficult to not avoid innocent people being affected by it. And it, it charges us up. It makes us feel like we should have a, uh, an opinion about Israel or the Palestinians or Iran or whoever's siding on one side or not. Who are the enemies? Well, we get a look at this in, in Psalm 83. First of all, you see, you want to know what an enemy is? You can tell by their character, the character of God's enemies. Let me just read to you what Asaph says in Psalm 83. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. And as I read through this, and I told you I've been reading through it and noticing things, and there's a description of God's enemies right there. Do you, know, do you want to know what an enemy of God is? There's a list. Number one, they are unified by a hatred for him. It specifically says those that hate you. They hate God. They hate what he stands for. They hate, 
the values that he wants to see in the culture that he gives us, in the people that he gives us. They stand against his word. They have a hatred for God and his people. If you are a follower of Christ, sometimes you may feel that. You're standing up for what God says is right. And yet culture grades against that. God's enemies have a hatred for him, for what he stands for. It says they are loud, outspoken, in the public. They don't have a fear of standing on the street and yelling it and shouting it. And what comes from them, what emanates, ultimately is a hatred for truth. A hatred for God and what he stands for. They don't just talk about it here. They come out here and they're loud. It describes them as an uproar. They're not afraid to say it. But they're also private. They may be loud in public, but privately they gather together and they're crafty. Crafty means they're thinking through. They're developing a way to promote their viewpoint to change hearts towards their hatred, towards God, towards His people. There's a craftiness to them in all of that. Not only that, it specifically says they have the goal of eradicating God's people. I'm just going to read it again. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. What an ugly thing to have as your stated goal, genocide. And yet we see it today. It's a stated goal of Hamas and other groups to wipe na the nation of Israel out. And you see that. The very things that I'm putting on this slide that we see in Psalm 83 exist today. A hatred for God and His people. They are public and loud about it. Privately they conspire about how to bring about the eradication of the Jewish people. And they are committed to the goal. They will give their lives for it. It says in Psalm 83 that they make a covenant. That's like a we're going to ratify this. We're going to shake hands. We're going to, we're going to make a, a, an agreement between us. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. In Psalm 83, the people who come against Jehoshaphat did not agree on every issue, but they were unified in their hatred of Israel, and they make a covenant to destroy them. Now, to me, the most intriguing word through all of that, I was reading one day and I went, oh, and it's this one. Those who, those who hate you have raised their heads. That word, that little phrase, raise their heads to me, is an identifier. It's an unmasking. You didn't know it was my birthday today when you came, did you? But Andrew made sure you did. And I, I'm not a big fan of that because we don't come to church for a person like, you know, but I don't want to dishonor. But then I'm like, this could, this could fit the message because you didn't know that. And Andrew like unmasked that. It's his birthday. He's getting old. Let's sing to him. <laughs> right? Now I'm going to ask you a question. Who in this room also has a birthday this month? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few. I see some in the back. See that? See how you raised your hand and you're identified now? They raised their heads before we may not have known what was in their hearts, but they raised up to say, we're haters and we're going to destroy you. There's a way in which the silence of God unmasks what's in the heart of the person. And you're seeing it right now publicly, globally. People who are standing up and what's coming out of their mouths is ultimately revealing they stand against God they stand against his people. Now, who are the real enemies? Well, the first piece I gave you is their character. But you might say, well, but specific names might be helpful. Are you saying, pastor, like Palestine is that or Iran is that? Well, right here in Psalm 83, he actually gives us names. 
He lists them, the identity of God's enemies. One writer said this is the role of infamy. It is the axis of evil right here that he's laying out. Let me just read it to you. I put them on a slide, but this is what he says. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyr, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. He's listing nations. He's listing people groups that have come together. Now, I wish I had time to go through each one of these to show you something about their background and their connection to why they hated Israel and God. I don't have time to do that. I'm going to pick one of them and show you something, okay? But that one I want to show you is towards the bottom there, Amalek, the Amalekites. And what's interesting about the Amalekites is you're going to see a similarity between the Amalekites and Hamas. And I'm not saying that Hamas are the Amalekites, but I want you to see what they were like because it's what Hamas is like and how God felt about them. And let me show you. Number one, they fight the weak and the defenseless. You may not know this, but when Israel came out of Egypt and began to go through the wilderness to the promised land, the first nation they encountered that attacked them, that waged war on them, was the Amalekites. And later Moses reminded them, he said, remember the Amalekites? Do you know how they fought? And he says it right here, I put it there. They attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. They came to fight against the weak, those who were the least defended, that's how they fight. That's their tactics. They came at you and fought your weak ones. Not only do they fight the weak and the defenseless, but they make raids to kidnap, to kill women, and to steal children. Later on, the Amalekites, they're still around. The nation of Israel has become this kingdom. Saul was a king. Later, David. David, as he's ruling the kingdom, in First in Samuel, he leaves, put the chapter there, 30, to go fight. King. He, he's not king yet, but he's, he's leaving, and he's got his mighty men with him. And it says that when all the mighty men left with David, the Amalekites came. They came to attack the women and the children while he went off to fight against Saul. This is the character of the Amalekites. They fight the weak and the defenseless. They'll make raids against women and children. Now I'm going to give you one more, but I, I got to come back to it. Because the next thing I want to give you is the curse of God's enemies. I'm going to go back to that Deuteronomy time, or I'm sorry, Exodus time, where they're coming out. They're coming out, and the Amalekites were the first nation that attacked them. God, do you, do you remember last week? His promises, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. And in, in that moment where the Amalekites attack God's people, you can read about it. God makes a vow to go against the Amalekites. He vows to fight until the memory of Amalek is blotted out from under heaven. You came against my people, now I am against you. And the 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 Old Testament unfolds this story. And that's going to take me back to our list. They fight against the weak and the defenseless. They raid against women and children, but the use of political means to eradicate the Jews. Now, here's what you need to know. God made that vow, I'm going to destroy the Amalekites. Later, when they become a nation, the first king is Saul. And God tells Saul, he remembers destroy the Amalekites, but he doesn't do it. God sends his prophet. The prophet shows up, and he hears, the way it's written, Amalekites. And he says, why have you left them alive? You were supposed to destroy all of them. And there was the king of the Amalekites. His name was Agag. Agag, the Amalekite, their king. You were supposed to kill him. You're supposed to wipe all of them out. You disobeyed God. It's one of the reasons Saul lost his throne. Because he wasn't obedient to God. Now, 
right in that moment, the prophet says, we're going we're gonna to be obedient to God, and he slays King Agag. But Amalekites survived because Saul didn't do his job. Later in the Old Testament, we have that book of Esther, and the villain of that book is Haman, who puts together and orchestrates an attempt to kill every single Jew. And Haman, it says, was an Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag and his people who came from the Amalekites. There's this long-running narrative in the Old Testament about that. Now, I'm going to go back for a second. I want to tell you something. When we look at the pictures and we wonder, God, why would you do that? Go back to the character of God. He's sovereign in all things. He's weaving things together for His purposes and His plan. And ultimately, His plan is the salvation of man. The salvation of man. But in this moment, here's what you see. You see a threat to that plan. That threat was Haman. Haman, who is going to kill every single Jew. But God's promise of salvation is to come through them. And so, why does God say to do that? Number one, He hates what they do, how they fight, what they stand for. They were evil, but at the same time, they're a threat to that plan, the plan of salvation. But what about he's holy, he's just. If he decides to judge them as a people, he can do that as God. He killed everyone in the world except Noah and his family because it was so sinful. He says, if I don't do that, the entire world will be lost. The sin will overcome everything. And sometimes he looks at a people, he looks at a nation, he says, I've got to destroy them because the amount of sin and evil there is growing like this. And sometimes he makes that judgment and he has the right to do that. And his judgment is holy and just and right. And sometimes it's hard for us to grapple with that. And that's why I go back and lean on who is God? What attributes exist there that make Him who He is? Now, let me take you back here to this slide. Who are the real enemies? We see the character. We certainly see the character. They hate God. They're going to be loud about it. Right? Remember the list? And then here we see a specific people. They fight the weak and defenseless. They raid against women and children. They will use political means to exterminate people. Now this is why you need to look at Scripture and let it guide you for how you view what's going on in the world. Because Paul writes in the New Testament, he says you need to grow up into full Christian maturity. There are Christians who are infants. But he says if you can grow into maturity, you'll be able to understand and see the things in the world in the way that God would want you to. Otherwise, this is what he says, we will no longer be infants, Ephesians 4, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. In other words, Paul's saying, if you're not grounded here, if you're not grounded in who I am as God, you will be tossed around in our culture. You will not be able to, to discern your moral compass is going to be off because you're allowing it to be led by culture. You need to grow up into spiritual maturity so you are not tossed to and fro. You see, here's a great example because I'm going to ask the question, how do we respond? And my first thought on this is you need to find discernment with moral clarity. You cannot have clarity unless your morals, your moral compass is grounded in God's Word. Without that, you cannot discern. A great example of this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a, a pastor that lived in Germany, saw what was going on as Nazism grew within the country, and anti-Semitism grew. He saw it for what it was. He discerned do you, do you realize that in Germany, the church went with Nazism, but not Dietrich, not Bonhoeffer, 
And he ended up being killed for making a stand. He could discern right and wrong because he knew what he saw was wrong. And we need Bonhoeffers today who ground themselves in God's word. You look at a picture and it makes it hard. I see an infant who lost his foot because a bomb fell where it shouldn't and it was an Israeli bomb. How do we filter that? Well, I think about in World War II, the Allies felt that Nazism was so bad, we needed to expunge it from their country. Did every single German accept Nazism? Did every person who lived there believe that Jews should be exterminated? No. Did innocent people die in their attempt to expunge Nazism from there? Yes. It's the nature of warfare and it's hard to whitewash everything too. Sometimes we, did it, we, we got something wrong. But we still need to ground ourselves as we filter this to be able to engage our culture. Moral clarity. There's a writer who had this to say about that. If we could not distinguish between an accidental death resulting from a car accident and an intentional murder, our criminal justice system would fall apart. And if we cannot distinguish between the killing of combatants from the intended targeting of peaceable, peaceable civilians, we will live in a world of moral nihilism. In such a world, everything reduces to the same shade of gray, and we cannot make distinctions that help us take our political and moral bearings. Moral clarity, without it, you can't discern. Hamas intentionally targeted innocent civilians like the Amalekites did. Now, I'm not saying again, there's just a, a similarity there. I'm not saying that Hamas is the Amalekites and these types of things. But to see God's response to it. When we ground ourselves, that's evil. Moral clarity. You don't target people like that. No matter what, if you think that this land should be yours, you don't target you don't target neighborhoods and shoot innocent people and kidnap. See, once you find moral clarity, you can see that. And with moral clarity comes imperatives. There are some things now as Christians, if the picture, if the fog lifts and you can see it better, then now God's going to ask you to do some things because you can see it right. An example of this, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, expel the wicked person from among them. In other words, Paul said within the, the Corinthian church, there's a guy in there doing something he must not do. So now you have to do something. And the thing you have to do is to expel him. He cannot live amongst you and do that evil thing. And that means for you, if you can see what really is evil and what is not, now, you must stand up for that. There are some imperatives that we get as Christians like this. Christians must not stand with anyone or anything that supports Hamas. They're, they're, within their statement of purpose and existence, they say they will exterminate all the Jews. So, Christians, we can't participate then in rallies of that kind, whether it's on a street corner or in social media, which make defenses for the indefensible, intentional slaughter of civilians. Now, just like in Germany, does every Palestine support Hamas? No. In fact, there's even believers in Palestine 
But in World War II, in order to expunge the Nazis, they had to fight. And people who live within there, like Bonhoeffer, they had to make a stand. See, one of the issues I have is it's easy even as Christians to go, you know what? I support that. Hamas, you're, you're, you're killing innocent people. That's wrong. But then when Hamas goes and commits those acts, they kidnap people, they bring them back to their, to their land, to their people, what's the response? What does the, what does the people do there? What does the Palestinians do when Hamas brings back the kidnappers? When they come back and say, I killed this many Jews. And what I saw was celebration. Not everyone, maybe somebody did, but in America recently, we saw an unjust killing of a black man by a police officer, and we saw public outcry. And my point is to say, where's the public outcry for the thousands killed by surprise, parachuting in and shooting people, going into neighborhoods where you study them so that you could slaughter them, so that you could kidnap them? Okay, where's the public outcry? Now see, this is discernment. So, how do we respond? You need to be able to discern. You need to ground yourself morally in God's Word. That's going to give you some imperatives for how to act. But I want to finish by telling you how to pray. How do we pray in this? You see, <clears throat> now I, I haven't said, I keep trying to emphasize that the Palestinian, the Hamas is not, um, Hamas is not the Amalekites, but the similarity is something to, to look at because it's almost like they're the opposite. The Amalekites were the opposite. The Amalekites were the opposite of what God desires communities to be. One writer said, again and again, God instructs Israel to care for orphans, widows, strangers, vulnerable people. In the Old Testament, you see Israel pronouncing a curse against anyone who perverts the justice due to a sojourner. That would be an immigrant. If they pervert the justice to the fatherless, if they pervert the justice to a widow, it, they spoke out against that. Prophet after prophet rails against Israel for her leaders for abusing the weak. But see, the Amalekites, they're not like that, are they? Amalekites, they don't just happen to harm women and children as collateral damage. Amalekites don't carry out the ban as Israel did, destroying men, women, and children and animals in select Canaanite cities on Yahweh's orders. No. Israel didn't attack Jericho, Hormah, other cities when all the men were gone. They attacked fortified, guarded cities conquered them and offered them in smoke to the fire of Yahweh. Amalekites specifically target women and children and the weak. You see, Amalek is the anti-Israel, a people whose way of life, values, and military tactics are set in direct opposition to Yahweh's purposes for humanity. Now what that says to me how do we pray about that? Well, we can pray, number one, for the salvation of people on both sides. Sometimes God changes it by bringing about salvation from the enemy. Yes, God said, go in and destroy a people. But do you remember the, the battle of Jericho? Two spies went in and they found someone, didn't they? Rahab. Well, why wasn't she killed? Didn't they say, kill everyone? No, because she put her faith in Israel's God. Conversion can be a way. We can pray for conversion. Pray for that, the salvation of people on both sides, the protection, healing, and comfort of people on both sides, for the growth of the church that lives on both sides of the borders. And we can pray boldly and call on our God to thwart, frustrate, and defeat the one side that is hell-bent on terrorism. That's how you should pray. And when you do, 
Just wait and see what God does. Because peace comes in His time, and sometimes He will surprise you. Do you, do you let me take you back to um, our song that we started with. Do you want to know how Asaph prayed? He prayed the way I'm, I'm saying, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Caesarea, Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed, who became dung for the ground, make their nobles, that's their leaders, uh, all their princes, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So, you may, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Look how he's praying. We should pray like that against Hamas and Hezbollah and any other organization that stands for evil. And we must know that that ideology exists within a people group, that every one of them themselves may not embrace that, but they need to expunge it. To allow it to live within them as a people sets them against God. Now, you may be surprised how God delivers. This prayer that Asaph, I'm reading to you, do you know how the battle ends? They're small by comparison, but Jehoshaphat, he gathers his forces. You can read about it in Chronicles. And here they come at the edge of battle, and they show up to fight the, the mighty alliance of nations. And they show up, they look out on the battlefield, and every single soldier is dead. They're dead. They didn't even fight. Not exactly sure how it happened. We get a little bit of information. God caused confusion. I kind of researched it. I want to know exactly what happened. The thought is that that little alliance of shaking hands didn't hold. They had disagreements among them. They were united in their hatred for, for Israel, but they fought amongst themselves and killed each other. That's how God did that one. And there are so many other cases where God defeats the enemy in ways that went, wow, didn't see that coming. Giant wall of water. Here come the Egyptians. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. You might be surprised how God brings about peace. And you might be surprised who becomes your ally. I mean, it's pretty astounding that Germany is leading in anti-Semitism. They're one of our allies in that effort right now. Look who our ally is out here in this part of the world, Japan. Those are two countries we fought wars with. And yet we expunged from them the evil ideologies that were there in those wars, and they became allies. Now, my feeling as a pastor is we need to support Israel in the ways I'm saying now, but politically, we need to be supportive of them as well. They're one of the only countries in the region that has freedom. And I, I, I don't know a better example of confused um, amb ambiguity of who you stand for. When recently I saw, you know, an LGBTQ cause standing up for Palestine because the Palestinians are against that. Not all of them, but given as a whole. It's almost like a Jew standing up in 1940s, supporting Nazism. That's what it would be like, because they will kill them. We need to support the freedom that exists there. And I told you, you may be surprised who your allies are there. I, I, I saw some politicians in the U.S. government stand up. This is, we are committed. We're going to stand with them. And, and some of those politicians were people that in the past, I went, oh, man. And now I'm going, that's good you're saying that. I mean, we're on the same page. I'm on the same page with someone who I haven't been on, <laughs> on a lot of issues. You might be surprised how God does it and who the allies are in that effort. And that's God. That's God weaving together, making all things together for good, His purposes. And there's a sense as a Christian that I'm really thankful that He's in control. Father, thank you so much for Asaph 
and the psalm that he wrote and so much truth in it that we can draw for today to help and guide us in how we look at pictures, how we filter what we hear, the conversations we have. We need to be a salt and light for truth. I mean, there's so much moral ambiguity that it's hard for people to discern. They're being tossed to and fro, as Paul said. But Christians should be grounded. Grounded first in who you are, your character, your attributes, what you do is holy, it's just, it's right, and to trust in that. Asaph said, and he turned his eyes to you. Don't be still. There's a a plea for you to act, for you to move. Peace belongs to you, and as Christians, we should be praying for what's going on there, for, for the people of Israel, the salvation of both Israel and Palestine, to have an expectation that you may bring about peace in a way that we never thought. We may have allies that we never thought would be allies. But Lord, those organizations like Hamas who are evil, that prey on the weak, that attack the defenseless, that kill and kidnap babies, I pray that you would exterminate that from those lands. And it may take a fight to do it, and innocence may be affected by that. I pray for the protection of the innocent. I pray for the protection of your church. But I pray that your will be done. And I say, don't be still. I pray like Asaph that you would move, that you would bring peace. But I pray also that you would teach us as a church something from all of this who you are, your character, and that when we have conversations, we can draw people into that truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for our salvation. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand in today's communion. That means they're going to play a song and we're going to sing and we're going to take everything that God has shared into our hearts today and and worship him as we come into our communion time. You are to prepare your hearts now for communion, for the Lord's table. And when you're ready, during the song, come up. Come forward. Grab one of these. Go back to your seat. When we finished singing, we're going to partake together as a body of Christ. Communion. Communion.